you know, the first story I wrote about Facebook when it was the Facebook and, you know, it was only for a couple, you know, accessible to a couple colleges. And you kind of look back at those things and get to watch the evolution of things that can become massive, not just large companies in terms of dollars, but world changing and, and the sorts of things that change all of our lives. The world of business and technology seems like a daunting subject for any journalist to cover. But just like any other beat, once you figure out the players and the big issues, it's just a matter of reporting and telling a story in a way your audience will understand. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. As the Axios business editor, Dan Permack specializes in covering complicated topics like venture capitalism, private equity deals, and public offerings in a concise, efficient, and smart way. Dan is the author of the Axios Pro Rata newsletter, and he also hosts the Pro Rata podcast, which focuses on the intersection of technology, business, politics, and media, all in 10 minutes. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks for having me. So to, to start off with, tell me a little bit about your journalist journey. You know, what got you interested into journalism uh, and how do you end up at Axios? Yeah, so I had always kind of, I, I thought really since I was kind of young, I'd probably be in journalism. Uh, my uncle was a columnist and a reporter at the Boston Herald when I was a kid, and, and it kind of always interested me. But business journalism specifically didn't. I got into it, for lack of a better term, because I followed a girl to New York and I needed a job, right, kind of before the dot-com boom busted. And I found one that, you know, that was a print newsletter in the trade world covering private debt of all things, which was extraordinarily boring, but it paid the obscene rent in Manhattan. And so I, I did that for a while ended up at Reuters for about a decade, Fortune after that, and then Axios. And, and Axios I ended up at really for two reasons. One, because Fortune and Time Inc., which owned it, was starting to die and, and was really, really struggling with digital transition and didn't really have a good sense on how to do it. And more importantly, Axios was green space. You, as a journalist, can get a bunch of opportunities to join startups and, and even digital media startups, but not many that are truly pre-launched, that are kind of a couple ideas on a whiteboard and nothing much more beyond that with a group of people who you respect and think are really smart individuals. So it was, it was kind of a leap of faith. And plus, I cover startups as part of my beat and have for you know 20 years. So it was kind of about time I joined one. This is actually kind of interesting because you start from someplace that, you know, is frankly is boring that, that you kind of did because it was expedient to your situation. But then you sort of made it your beat and you kind of owned that beat and then you were able to take it into the startup world. What is it about business reporting that, that appeals to you? To be honest, I think business reporting is like a lot of other, you know, I think it's fairly similar to political reporting or sports reporting even. There's kind of winners and losers and there's a story why it happens and behind it. And there's also some interesting evolution, right? You know, if you do it long enough, I remember, you know, the first story I wrote about Facebook when it was the Facebook and, you know, it was only accessible to a couple colleges. And you kind of look back at those things and get to watch the evolution of things that can become massive, not just large companies in terms of dollars, but world changing and, and the sorts of things that change all of our lives. And it's an interesting thing to get to cover and get to follow throughout the years. So what's it like being a part of a startup as opposed to just covering them? I think a lot of the cliches are true. They are. I mean, the biggest one, and particularly for folks who have worked not just in, in large media companies, but any large business, the ability to do things and make big changes quickly is you know something that always gets talked about at startups, right? That you can just do things because you don't have all these layers of bureaucracy and you don't have all these people with their different fiefdoms and you know legacy pieces of software upon legacy pieces of software. You know, at a startup, you can just do things. If you've got a good idea, there's really not much pushback to doing it. And I'd say the other thing is, you know, given that everybody does have an equity stake in the business, and particularly in the early days when those were fairly relatively large equity stakes in the business, everybody's kind of pulling in the same direction. We're, we're all kind of 
looking for the same thing or kind of, you know, got each other's backs. So for a lot of journalists, I mean, we have we have younger journalists who listen to our podcast who are just starting out their careers. You know, what would you say to them about being a business reporter that, you know, they might see it as something kind of daunting is how to know all of the players and how to, you know, some of these things can be quite complicated. What, What advice would you give to them? I'd say two things. First, you know, it's interesting. The reason I got my first job, that job in New York, my first business reporting job was I had just worked actually as a deputy press secretary on a congressional campaign in Massachusetts. And the candidate had been extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, So so what I learned later was the reason I got the job. I mean, I I was a decent writer and, and they thought I'd be a decent reporter, but it was more that they liked the idea that I had just worked with a rich person. And because they had a lot of, you know, 23 year old reporters who'd come in making, you know, 30 grand a year. And and how do they interview a billionaire, a multimillionaire, kind of that power differential. So to be honest, that's apparently why I got hired. So that's the first thing, which is you, you do have to be willing to handle the wrong word, but realize that you're going into a situation where a lot of people you're going to be interviewing are just to have a lot more cash than you do. And there is kind of a, a power differential to a certain extent. But the other thing, and more importantly, is there is always going to be a learning plateau. And it's really steep at the beginning if you're doing business reporting, and it's particularly beat business reporting. But it does level out. And once it does, it becomes a lot easier. You just have to be willing to put in that hard work at the beginning. And to be honest, be uncomfortable at the beginning and lean on other reporters who have experience. So, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, you, chances are you're going to be interviewing somebody who's, who's got a lot more money than you. And oh, yeah. it does sort of create a, a power dynamic in an interview. And, and it's always it's always tricky when you're, you know, you sometimes you'll run into this when you're doing political reporting, you, you know, somebody who's who's holding office and they've got the whatever cachet they have. Um, is there any secret to to interviewing somebody with a lot of money who, you know, is in that power dynamic with you in an interview? Yeah, I think you have to just completely ignore it. You know, it's cliche, you know, you, they put their pants on one leg at a time, but you just have to completely ignore it. And to be honest, you have to remember what you're there for. And what you're there for is to get a story to your readers. And and so whatever pieces of information you want from this individual, you have to try to get. And the, and the other thing is, I'd say is, you know, whether somebody is very rich or very powerful or not, they do like having their point often, and particularly folks, maybe you could say who've raised, who made a lot of money, they want to have their point of view heard. So they want not necessarily a sympathetic ear, but they want somebody to listen to them. And, and so you can, you can kind of create relationships with folks, despite the power differential relationships, which go both ways, which is you get information out of them and they feel that you're at the very least willing to, to give them not necessarily a sympathetic ear, but at least a fair hearing. In this kind of dynamic here, is, is there, I mean, do you sort of need to sort of establish their respect for you? You know, and, and how do you do that? I'm in a fortunate position. So I've been doing a newsletter now. I I know there's all this talk about how email newsletters are are the new thing and everybody does them, but I've been doing one for about 18 years. So Mike Allen, who co-founded Axios and I are are kind of contemporaries when it comes to that. So I've been doing it for a very long time. And and what that means is I've been in a lot of these people's inboxes for over a decade, particularly the folks who are a bit older now and, and have been doing this for a while, or even the folks who are a little younger, but I was in their inbox when they were in college or business school or their first, you know, job out of school. That helps. Just having an audience and a known audience helps. It's the reason why you're more likely to get your phone call returned if you're working for the Wall Street Journal than if you're working, you know, for a small trade publication or or a small paper. I think you have to kind of earn people's respect, but I think you do that kind of through good reporting elsewhere and being fair. I, I think even folks who you write tough stories about 
most folks who are in big in business, they'll recognize whether they feel it is fair or not. And I think they're often pretty honest about that. Maybe a little bit less in Silicon Valley than even on Wall Street, but I, I think they respect something that's tough but fair. So Silicon Valley, Wall Street, what are the differences? You know, How do you approach covering those? Silicon Valley, and, and maybe this is beginning to change, well, let's say two things. One, Silicon Valley is trying to build things. Wall Street is basically usually trying to finance things. So it's a, it's a different sort of world. But Silicon Valley truly believes, and, and this is a generic thing to say, that it is a force for societal good, right? That it is trying to build things that will make the world a better place. I don't think Wall Street is under those illusions. I think maybe it was in the early, say, in the 1970s or the early 1980s, but I think Wall Street has gotten bashed around so much over the past couple decades that, that it now knows what it is. And Silicon Valley is having a bit of a reckoning, not that there are bad intentions necessarily in Silicon Valley, but that there can be some uh, Dr. Frankenstein moments, that there are unintended consequences to a lot of the things they build, and they haven't done a great job necessarily, not even just not thinking them through, but reckoning with that when it happens. So, you know, you, you mentioned the fact that when you're talking about newsletters and you've been doing newsletters for, you said, I think you said 18 years, nice. but everybody now is like email newsletters, email newsletters. It's the next, next big thing. We don't all get behind it. What, you know, what lessons, <laughs> you know, what takeaways do you have about being a, a newsletter editor? So a few things. One, I still think it is the best way to kind of build, if, if not community, but a relationship between author and readers. You know, I, I know a lot of us get tons and tons of email and, and we view email as this antiquated spam filled thing, but people still look at their inbox. Uh, they, they still open it. It is still mail being sent to you. It's not like the old mailbox, the physical mailbox, but it's still mail being sent to you. And it's different, right? It is something that is being given to a reader, directed specifically to a reader, as opposed to say a website or even an app where a reader is having to go find it. So it's a different relationship. And, and the biggest takeaway, and I think the reason why when you look at Axios, all of our newsletters, and we have over a dozen now, there, there is a name in the inbox. The, the sender isn't Axios or Axios Parada or Axios Sports. No, there's a name for two reasons. One, because we are real people writing these. And two, because we want that relationship. We want somebody to know when they hit reply to one of these newsletters, it's not just going to some, you know, some empty inbox or going to be read by an intern. No, it's going to us. It's going to the person who sent it to you. Well, having your name on that, having your name associated with the podcast, do you think about how, how you present yourself, your identity when you're, you're covering things? Or is this just kind of the way, you know, this is the way stuff goes out? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, I, I will say the, the newsletters I've written in the past prior to Axios were a little bit more personal. I think the people knew my family a little bit better. Uh, my The first thing when I used to be at business events or conferences, people would always ask me about my car because my car, which broke down constantly, it became a character in my, essentially a character in my old columns. But I don't think about it all that much, but certainly the personality is there. I, I think, you know, longtime readers or regular readers of mine could probably identify my writing, you know, as a, compared to somebody else's. And look, and I write it often in the first person. I, I, I don't pretend to be, you know, omniscient narrator. I, I am who I am. I've got certain biases, whether that, you know, be about certain business topics or political topics, et cetera. And they're pretty much laid out there. So podcasting, how did this podcast come about? This podcast came about, we had been avoiding, it's the wrong word, but just not jumping into it is the better way to say it. It had kind of been in the back of our heads at Axios and we just hadn't jumped in. And then I was sitting uh, in our, I'm, in, I'm based in Boston, but I was in our DC headquarters with Ina Freed, who's actually based in San Francisco. And, and she writes our login tech newsletter. 
And for some reason, we did a video spot where Ian and I were simply asked to just riff on Amazon and, and maybe Apple for like 15 minutes. And we did, and, and the videos went up. And Jim Vandehei, our CEO, apparently really liked the video. And he said, you know what, why don't you guys figure out a way to do this as a podcast? To which we eventually realized it was going to be very hard to have somebody on the East Coast and West Coast doing a daily podcast. And I think in the end, I was the sucker who said, you know what, we can pull this off, you know, four days a week. I see no reason why we can't do it. So that's kind of how it started. And the idea behind Axios as an editorial idea is twofold. One, smart brevity. This idea that we want to give you good information, but we don't want to take up your day. And then secondarily, that from a topic perspective, it's collisions of technology and politics and business. And so we kind of merged those two things into this Prorata podcast, which, as you said, is, is only 10 minutes long each morning. Yeah, you know, it's, you know, and I've listened to a few episodes of the podcast. It is, you know, brief. It's to the point. It, you know, encapsulate whatever the particular topic of the day is. You're not wasting my time. It's a nice, a nice little, little thing to, to listen to each day to sort of keep track of what you're kind of, kind of doing here. But, you know, you, you're wearing a lot of hats here. You're doing a newsletter, you're doing a, a you know, a four day a week podcast. And, and I assume you're reporting things yep. in among here. How do you balance all of these? Tasks. Uh, I'm a very disorganized person, except when it comes to the timing, I guess. So I just segment my time out, right? So the newsletter I write each morning kind of from six to 10, and, and there's usually an hour in the middle there where I'm making my kid breakfast and taking her to school. So it's kind of a three hour lift from beginning to end. And then I start the podcast immediately after. So the, the newsletter gets done. I hit send at 10 a.m. And then I immediately put on headphones because I've got a little studio in my house uh, where I work and I put on headphones and start talking to my producer in D.C. And we do the podcast. Hopefully I've, pre I've gotten a guest probably during that 6 to 10 a.m. time. Maybe I haven't. I'd say about 60 percent of the time our guest is somebody from Axios and, and we're talking about a topic either that they've been reporting on that morning or that we know and maybe 40 percent of the time an outside guest we crank it out. It, it takes us about probably an hour beginning to end, including the interview. I write a lot of it out. It's not completely scripted, but I write a lot of it. And then the rest of the day, I spend my day reporting. And, and if you spend the rest of your day reporting and you do it well, that makes the newsletter in the morning and the podcast a lot better the next day, um, particularly the newsletter, which is a lot of their, the goal is to have original reporting. And it. it's not just, you know, a aggregation. So, you know, how far out are you planning in your podcast um, episodes? I know, you know, for us, it can be difficult sometimes to, you know, try to schedule a guest and, you know, the, the topics may not necessarily fall on the topic of the day. No. I mean, are you sort of more relying on this is the stuff I was covering yesterday. This is this is the stuff I, I wrote about in the newsletter. This is what's going to people are going to be interested in. Or is it a little more looser than that? It's pretty fly by the seat of your pants. I would say, again, we, we tape this thing every day between kind of 10, 15 and 11 a.m. And it's almost always up by noon Eastern each day. There's a decent number of times where by 930, so an hour before we're really doing the interview, uh, I don't have a guest and don't know even who the guest is going to be. You know, if, if we've got a guest lined up 24 hours in advance or, or maybe say 18 hours in advance, then we're ahead of the game. Then we're having a really good day. Yeah. And you're probably really happy that you've got somebody on oh, the schedule. Thrilled. I'm absolutely thrilled. It, it, it is a nicer feeling to go to bed knowing I don't have to think about it the next morning. Yeah. That you're going to have to vamp for 10 minutes on, on some topic. I mean, we always get a guest. It's just we don't always know who it's going to be. But the truth is maybe I, not the podcast, but it's true of the newsletter, too. There's probably a good 30 percent of the time, maybe even 40 percent of the time where I haven't thought not haven't thought but don't know what the newsletter lead is going to be and certainly haven't written it. You know, by the time I get up for the morning, we're going to publish. So what's been the feedback that you've gotten on the podcast? 
It's been really good, not surprisingly good, but uh, I've been surprised that when I'm at kind of business functions and, and conferences and the like, as many people are now talking to me about the podcast as they are about the newsletter. And, and I say that I wasn't a podcast person before this. I did a little bit of rate, like professional radio when I was a teenager, but like I, I didn't listen to podcasts because I work out of my house, so I didn't have a commute. I know some people can listen to them while they while they run or whatever, and I can't. I would just fall asleep. So I, I think... I've been surprised by the number of people who have listened and kind of how it's become an integral part of their day. And I'm thrilled. I love that people have because it's even though it's got the same brand, this pro rata brand name that we have for the newsletter, it is a different beast. It's a different sort of product, not just the form of media, but topic wise. The newsletter is much more focused on deals and deal makers and things like that, whereas the, whereas the podcast is broader, often more political. And just as I noticed right now in talking to you, you're a bit of a chatty Kathy. So you get on the mic and, and you seem to be able to think and talk pretty quickly, which is I think is a good thing if you're if, if you're if you're a podcaster. So how would you you know describe the whole package of the the, the Dan uh, Primark brand here? The, I mean, it's you know you're a podcaster, you're your newsletter writer, your your business reporter. I'd say I'm a reporter. And whether that's via the newsletter, whether it's via story, or even the podcast, which isn't you wouldn't view necessarily as traditional reporting, but given the way we do it and that it is this 10-minute block and that it is supposed to provide some information to you you haven't heard before, delve a little uh, delve kind of into a topic you might have seen the headline of but don't really know much about. My, my goal is to disseminate information to, to people. And I think the, the way I like to think about myself, I, I remember when I was in college actually seeing a speech by Bob Novak, the now deceased Chicago Sun-Times uh, conservative uh, political columnist, and he used to call himself a reporting columnist. In other words, he's giving opinion to a large extent and trying to make an argument, but he wants to make sure he's providing you new factual information in there as well. And at my best, that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. So what's the hardest part of your day? I think is is probably figuring out what I'm going to do once the newsletter is out and kind of what, what I want to spend the rest of my day working on and, and see if there's kind of a big story I can try to nail. So you're working 100% pretty much out of your house? Uh, yeah, primarily. I mean, I'm on the road a bunch. And again, our office, our headquarters rather is in Washington. So I'm there. I, we have an office in New York. I go there a bunch as well. Do you find it hard sometimes to not be at the office when you're at home? Yeah, the office is always here. It is uh, literally next door to my bedroom. So it is right here. It's hard, although I, I think it's it's a problem I used to have where others don't. But I think anybody who's got a smartphone with them has the same problem at this point. So, uh, Dan, what's the story that you haven't written that you'd like to write at this point? Oh, the story I haven't written. OK, well, I'll tell you because I'm going to try to write it for next week at some point, which is – which isn't a scoopy sort of thing, but is there's been all this talk. It really started two years ago, but it's ramped up in the last few weeks about, you know, breaking up big tech. You hear Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders talk about it. Even hear Trump talk about it to a certain extent, although not as explicitly. And the underlying current of all this is that we in America have antitrust laws and monopoly laws. But they were written over 100 years ago, and they were really written for railroads and big and, and what was then big oil. And so everybody's kind of bipartisan in this agreement that a lot of these tech companies and even companies in other industries like big food, et cetera, have gotten too large. But the current rules don't really apply to them. Because so, for example, to decide that something is currently anti-competitive or monopoly, there's kind of two tests. And one of those tests is, does it raise prices for consumers? 
well, you and I don't pay for Facebook. We don't pay for Google, at least not monetarily. We might pay in terms of losing our privacy or whatnot, but we don't pay for those things. And Amazon for sure has lowered prices, at least if you use Amazon. It's cheaper to buy on Amazon than it was from a mom and pop retailer. So there's this question of, okay, if we're all in agreement that we need new antitrust laws, what do those look like? How would those get designed? And it's the it's the second part, the bigger part, which hasn't gotten discussed as much. And, and that, I kind of want to dig into that and figure out we're all in some weird bipartisan agreement on something now. We don't have really much clarity into what it would look like outside of a few very piecemeal things like a few of the things Elizabeth Warren's proposed in terms of Amazon. So have you thought any, uh, about uh, this relationship that new the news industry has with you know platforms like Google and Facebook and about – you know, how a lot of publishers would like to get some of that ad re revenue from Google, which is using their content or at least uh, putting it in, in search for them. Do you have any thoughts about that? Facebook, Google, I mean, it's effectively copyright theft. I mean, that's really what it is. They've been doing it for a while. Online publishers have all just had to swallow hard and accept it because you don't have much choice. You hear rumblings every now and then that some big publishers, you know, could, for example, try to pull their content for a period of time for, from Facebook and these questions of would that be collusion with that, you know, legal collusion, would that be legally allowed, would it not? But it would really take something like that, right? You know, for say the 10 largest online publishers in America to say to Facebook, pull all our stuff and pull it, not only the new stuff we're publishing, you got to pull everything out of your archives too. You don't have permission. To, you never had permission to use it. You don't have permission to use it. It would take something massive like that. Otherwise, you know, it's interesting. So I live in a small town in Massachusetts, right? And our small town has a big private high school in it, which is kind of the biggest landowner in the town. And it's a nonprofit, so they don't technically have to pay property taxes to the town, and they don't. Instead, they every now and then give a small little stipend to the town, throw, you know, 10 grand or whatever, you know, to, to be nice. But the town basically always has to go begging for money from the school and grovel in front of the school because they have absolutely no power. And I view that the same as online publishers with Facebook and Google. You know, they beg for table scraps, but don't really do anything and, and aren't willing to take the risk and the big chance to make that big power move to actually try to hurt Facebook or Google's bottom line. So do you think there's any, any possibility of some sort of government regulation, some sort of law that, that would allow, I don't know, maybe publishers to, I think there's something on Capitol Hill that they're trying to get the ability to collectively bargain with the platforms. You, you know, think there's some likelihood of something in that happening? Not particularly. I think on Capitol Hill, the only thing hated, disliked more uh, across the aisle than big tech is big media. Okay. Dan, you've given us a lot to think about. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. 
Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.